Welcome to Pop Culture Retro, which was recently voted the 15th best podcast by the residents of the Golden Years Retirement Community in Boca Raton, Florida. Each show, we'll revisit some of your favorite pop culture memories with insider and outsider perspectives. Now, please help me welcome your hosts, Ike Eisenman and Jonathan Rosen. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Pop Culture Retro. I'm one of your hosts, Jonathan Rosen, along with Ike Eisenman. And today we are thrilled to welcome a writer, producer, stand-up comic, co-host of the Chill Pack Hollywood podcast, star of the fun series The Lone Gunman, which originated from the beloved classic The X-Files. Please help us welcome Dean Hagland. Dean, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, great to be here, guys. I know, it seems like we've already, like, I hate to blow how the chicken is made but we've been chatting already for 10 minutes and oh yeah no and, and, and i want to pick it back up for a second because okay. you're talking about doing um you know classic movie like theater um tours in los angeles and i haven't been in la and in, in well i've been there but i've not I, I haven't lived there for a good nearly 25 25 years now oh, oh. and i wondered what happened to those theaters because so many of them were getting turned into you know souvenir shops or being torn down and other things built how many of them still exist down there because that really was the well, it, it, it let, was let's like inform the, that dean did used to mention that he used to give tours so yes, i was a yeah. tour guide <laughs> technically i still am a tour guide when i'm in los angeles so <laughs> i divide my time here between uh, detroit michigan and los angeles california so, uh, and why I'm in Detroit, I'll jump to that question. My sure. better half is a senior executive in the automotive industry. So oh, neat. She, she's a big deal. And so uh, she got called to corporate headquarters after living for four years in Sydney, Australia, where she righted the whole corporate uh, ship over there and then said, you're promoted to corporate headquarters. So we came here. So that's, that explains that, but we didn't ditch our place in Los Angeles. So. We kept both. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to jump ahead then. What did you just mention? What made you go to Australia? Oh, well, that was her job too. So she became a CFO of the Asia Pacific branch of uh, Penske, Roger Penske, the Penske Corporation. Perhaps you've seen the Penske oh. rental truck and perhaps oh, yeah. you know uh, Roger Jr. who owns Variety Magazine uh, oh, wow. and you know uh, uh, the Penske racing team. Uh, the winning most racing team, 135 race cars and NASCAR and across the board, which Roger Penske started as an 18-year-old young man. He was a race car driver and then built the Penske empire that is today. Oh, so, yeah, he's quite a sharp, uh, sharp cookie. He's still on the on the sales calls and uh, great guy to work for. 60,000 employees all agree. <laughs> he's fantastic. Wow. So. I know that's a nice story to hear about corporate America. So many of these things are, well, that guy, what a, you know, none of that. You never hear a single thing about that guy. So well, now, let's uh, talk about you. Yes, <laughs> about me. About Roger. I'm a big this fan Roger of show? Screw that guy. I'm a big fan of yours, big fan of the X-Files, and we're going to get to all that. But I want to start at the beginning. You mentioned you, you, you were born in Canada. I wonder, was your family very into performing? No. Oh, no. Well, no, 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 <laughs> uh, no. Uh, they were into uh, uh, laughing. So our family's really funny. Uh, and everybody who came over said so. It was 
you know, at the dinner table, six of us, you uh, quick with the zingers and the things and the <laughs> practical jokes. My first practical joke, uh, the age of three, I hid the, uh, the uh, Kleenex box like this one right here behind my crib. Huh? See? And then when my mom goes, where's the Kleenex box? I took her by the hand to my bedroom and pulled back the crib and went, ha ha, good. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the start of my comedy career right there. <laughs> the hiding the Kleenex box behind the crib. It's a classic gag. I'm sure you've seen it in all the silent films. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> my God. Well, when did, when, when did you first start to, uh, realizing that you wanted to turn this into actual performing? Wow. Well, from the get-go, I mean, I was uh, uh, doing all the lessons, acting lessons and child lessons, you know, childhood uh, performing, you know. I did, um, we had a progressive uh, high, uh, elementary school principal who did talent day for every grade every month. No and so every opportunity I went up and did the stupidest things, including dressing up. Oh my God, I forgot all about this. Dressing up and uh, lip syncing to a song from Phantom of the Paradise by Paul Williams. Ah. <laughs> <It was> full <laughs> circle. <laughs> That's how much I love that movie. I can't which, get over Which it. was not mentioned in that Paul Williams interview I heard. <laughs> I know, I know. I was shocked. It was like the major cultural touchstone from a kid from Winnipeg was this movie <laughs> called Phantom of the Paradise. Okay, and here's the thing I say to everybody, everybody who sees it, and I said this on a podcast in Australia, and they actually showed it on Australian broadcasts because they listened to the podcast somehow. And so they aired it and everybody tweeted the same thing across the country. Eh, must be a Winnipeg <laughs> thing. And I gotta tell you, you gotta watch this thing twice. Because the first time it seems like a terrible, cheesy B movie that Brian De Palma, his very first directing uh, or second directing uh, thing he ever did, it's a Brian De Palma mm. film. Uh, it seems like you're like really bizarre, but when you watch it a second time, it unfolds like a magical rock <laughs> opera flower, and the music's fantastic, and you're singing every tune. It's it's a bizarre phenomena, and that's why. Everybody in Winnipeg had to go see it. Six, I think we're going to have to do an episode on this on the Phantom. <laughs> I think bring me on, man, because yes, I, oh, like, I know <laughs> everything about this movie. <laughs> how, how did you, how did you break into the business yourself? How did you first get involved? Uh, well, my parents were taking me to a theater uh, acting school called Prairie Theaters Change, and uh, so I was doing that, and then. You know, every now and then something would come through Winnipeg that would film. There was a horrible Canadian series called Littlest Hobo about a stray German shepherd that would solve crime somehow. It was, you know, shot on a single Betamax and uh, and they'd always need like some extra in the background going, hey, there goes that dog. <laughs> I think that's exactly what I said when I was like 12. <laughs> so so uh, from that, I was started doing a lot of theater and then sketch comedy. And then I moved to Vancouver and started doing stand-up and then joined Vancouver Theater Sports League 
which had the likes of Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery from who's yeah, we're gonna ask you about that too. I mean, you you worked with with Ryan Stiles and Colin Mockery for there for yeah, oh yeah, for, <laughs> for years. Yeah, yeah. So there was a group of about 30 improvisers, uh, all from across Canada, and it was a weird phenomena because in 1986 there was the World's Fair. Did you know there was still World's Fairs in the 80s? I didn't know this, but Vancouver no. had one and they had this unlimited budget. So they hired every funny improviser from across Canada and moved them to Vancouver for six months to perform at a theater there. And then when it closed down, they all said, hey, we love it here. And here's this other theater called Vancouver Theater Sports. Let's all perform there. So suddenly you had this massive concentration of all this talent in one mm -hmm. city. And then I started performing there while I was going to university. Uh, you were doing stand-up at that time? Stand-up at that time, then started doing improv at that time. And then uh, I, I did 10 shows a week for four and a half years solid without a day off. Oh. Um, I had Mondays wow. off. Yeah, but then it was like Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday. And then some of them were scripted. Some of them were improvised. Then there was a hit show called Star Trek the Musical where I played Spork. And uh, this was a, a massive show in Vancouver in the 90s. And that ran. Uh, so when the, when the county fair was on, called the Pacific National Exhibition, I'd have to do a show at 10 a.m., a noon show, that I get a bit of an afternoon break, then be at the theater for a five o'clock call, then perform till 2 a.m., and oh. then do it again Sunday, and then have Monday off and then start wow. uh, nightly shows. And that was a four and a half year schedule that I did. It was like it was like the Beatles in Hamburg for crying out loud. So we did everything in magic, you know, game shows. And it was, majority of it was improv, but there was also scripted stuff. And at the same time, then you're off auditioning for every crappy Stephen J. Cannell crime <laughs> yeah. thing, because oh, he was up there, oh my God you know cold sub and uh street justice with carl weathers and uh i was in that and because i had long blonde hair that was my real hair i was always the drug dealer that's what i was gonna say we were looking at your credits your first your first three credits on imd were like junkie drug dealer and crackhead i mean yeah. we, we're <laughs> totally. really thinking like wow this is show business <laughs> i i have me in front of every uh, little one banger trailer just in i would bring my own uh, filthy leather jacket or a jean jacket with holes in it it was my own <laughs> wardrobe you know and then i just stand smiling behind every my character name on the door crackhead junkie three <laughs> like i have like 80 of those polaroids really proud of them <laughs> well were you worried about getting typecasting in this uh you know wonderful category when you first started or were you just happy to get to get work i was just happy to get work you know because vancouver yeah. is also a small community so you knew a lot of the actors and they had all seen theater sports so they knew yeah i'm not a junkie but you know <laughs> it was like oh oh you too oh hey yeah you have long hair and you know they grease it up uh, and one makeup or hair guy said, oh, this is really good for a greasy look. He sprayed Pam in oh my, my hair. God. Yeah, oh. nonstick. And that, I, I'm going, is it going to come out? Ah, yeah, yeah, it comes out. <laughs> Don't worry. And no, it no, didn't no. come out. It was like three weeks before uh, shampooing that. Sh oh, my God. Uh, a tip to the kids out there. Don't use Pam in your hair. 
don't know if I have to say Oh, that. no, it's rather extraordinary how many hair and makeup people would do would do some strange, bizarre thing they wouldn't think anything twice about, you know, for an effect. And and then and then yet you're just stuck. I mean, there's nothing yeah, I know do about it. I know, you know, well, you know, I got to be on stage again, like on the next week. It was just like it's sort of like crinkle, matty, weird hair. But it was just like, yeah, yeah they, I, I, I had a project. I won't name it. Oh, come um, on. But but where I, I had to play like this, uh, this, this grungy, this grungy kid, and they used something in my hair to make it look matted and dirty. And within three days, my hair started falling out. So, <laughs> oh, no, no, oh, they had to stop using it. I, I don't know what they went to. I don't know what it was. But it was just like, it, it's just like, so strange back in. And, and you know, there was as much product and stuff. I'm digressing here. This should be no, about no. you. But, um, it's, it's like the show rhymes with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but even, you no, know, I'm, Buddy Epson lost the, the role of the Tin Man on The Wizard of Oz, right? Because of that makeup. Oh, yeah, makeup. yeah. I mean, I, stories like that always fascinate me because, you know, unless they're talked about, no one really kind of knows all the experimentation and that goes into this stuff. And of course, they've got incredible products now. You know, you don't you don't really hear stories like that anymore. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar experience on Star Trek too with the the burn makeup. It was this horrible gelatin based thing that I couldn't get off my body. It took me ninety minutes to clean it off in a hot shower what? at the end of at the end of my day. And the makeup people said, "Oh yeah, it'll come off easy, no problem. Just you know, soap and water, you'll be fine." And they completely abandoned me and left me <laughs> left me to that because I guarantee you they didn't do that to Ricardo Montalban. I'm sure he got plenty of help. <laughs> But yeah. me, you know, the 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 red collar guy, um, right. the expendable the one. But anyway, but anyway, yeah, because the con, right? They result yeah. sorts of makeup effects all yeah. over the place. Yeah, it was brand, it was brand new stuff, and they were all very uh, excited about it. And uh, yeah, I I wasn't Let's tested so. on this kid. Wow. Yeah, yeah I was well, the first you know, one to have it applied on me. So yeah, <laughs> there wow, it is. That's terrible, like I'm so yeah. sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we, have, we have great stories as a result right so oh you get pam sprayed in your hair exactly. oh my god that's yeah. terrible and you know about the history of makeup in hollywood this is on part of my tour so uh you know there's that max factor museum yes absolutely you know how he came to hollywood uh, no his, his brother john factor was a senior lieutenant of al capone in oh. Chicago. And John said, hey, man, this violence, this prohibition, boobity boom, boom, this is freaking me out. I'm getting the hell out of here. I'm going to Los Angeles, right? There's no bang. There's no shooting there. And then brother goes, Max goes, yeah, I'll come with you and go, OK, well, what are you going to do? Or said, well, what should I do? I and, and John goes, hey, you know, you're really good at those funerals, those funerals where you make up all the gangsters to make them look good. You should do that. So because oh, oh, oh. he made up gangsters at oh, the open dude. casket funerals, he had makeup experience. And so he made the actresses look so great that they said at the end of a day of shooting, because it was black and white back then, and he did a more natural, not that pancake and then black eyeliner, crazy silent film stuff. He was doing more natural shading. They all the actresses said, oh, leave it on. I got a premiere tonight. I'm going to this thing tonight. The camera's going to be there. And so they all walked out and they go, how come you look so amazing? And they all went, oh, it's Max Factor. And then he started a whole makeup line and the rest is history. 
Unbelievable. Isn't that something? So prohibition gangsters, you know, <laughs> it's the underlying of all of Hollywood. <laughs> there you go. It's pop culture retro with a history lesson as well. Oh my gosh. I'm <laughs> I'm up to here with historical trivia of Hollywood. Oh, I do want to ask about one of your early roles before we go. I you were in one of my fit you were in Super Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Einstein and John Biner, the legend. Did, did oh you have to, much interaction with either of them? Off, like, at yeah. Least oh, yeah. What was that experience like? Oh my God. Well, I hate to say it, but he was. I don't know if he was under a lot of stress because he was uh -oh. uh, producing <laughs> it, but a bit of a, you know, it was low budget for sure, and it seemed to be his money. So oh. <laughs> yeah. So he wanted a gag because I came in the audition with a ball cap on. And the long hair, right? And then he went, Oh, you know, it'd be funny if he took the ball cap off. And then, you know, it's like the hair is attached to the ball cap. But then when he takes it off, there's a different color hair, long hair underneath it, right? So, so it'd be like I had a ball cap, long hair, and like look like uh, Wayne's World sort of thing. But then I'd take it off, and then the, uh, the blonde hair would unfurl, right? So, oh, oh yeah, hey, that's funny. So, you know, he tells somebody at the table at the audition, great, we'll see you Tuesday sort of thing. And then I get there and he's like, oh, hey, great, you're on set. Uh, where's that ball cap? They're all like, what? You know, the ball, the wig cap that he's supposed to, uh, here's the cat. Well, where's the hair? And then he just starts yelling at the crew and he doesn't wow. even talk to me after that. And then they, you know, shoot two takes and get me out of there. So yeah, there's, there's a couple of terrible stories that only Vancouver knows of him, uh, <laughs> that, on that thing. But, you know, comedy legend. And, and you were like, oh my God, that's super Dave. And then you're like, no. He doing doing this show, I get so many of my images shattered. <laughs> oh, hey, that's my specialty. Don't oh, get I, I got it shattered with Paul Lynn and now with Bob Einstein. So. <laughs> I know. Well, that's the oh, God. You know, the retro show, now Now that it's like past, you right, can like exactly. say these things that yeah, you couldn't say at the yeah, time. Yeah, poor right? Jonathan gets shattered and I just say, yeah, you know what? Um, <laughs> some people are like that. You know, that's wow. just what you run into. God. I know, right? And you just like, Jeez. well, everybody's human. And, you know, making movies hard. Nobody yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, goes out a of lot of, yeah, it, it, It's a lot of pressure. And and by and large, everyone I work with handled it extremely well. You know, they were professionals, but, you know, you ran into that and it's just, uh, it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and, you so, know, early days of Vancouver too, everybody was going up there to try to save money. And so yeah. their, your budgets were tighter and you didn't have a lot of experienced line producers and, and all of that stuff up there per se. So it became... Uh, a little more, uh, uh, how do we say, tippy canoe, I believe is a polite way to say that the whole <laughs> production could go straight to hell tomorrow, kind of thing. <laughs> well, shortly after your wig fiasco, you get the role in X-Files. Now, yes. how did that come about? And had you been a fan of the show beforehand? No, Jesus, never heard of it. Are you kidding? Nobody <laughs> had. It was first season. <clears throat> Even my agent, like, didn't know. He goes, hey, man, there's another show. You know, uh, Canadian actors at that time, particularly character guys, You, there was like five, six long-haired actors that would all kind of go out for the same roles over and over again. And you just go into the room and you go, 
Hey, Lachlan Blair. Hey, man. You know, you see all the same actors and yeah, everybody yeah. you read and you basically just get in line. You know, okay, it's your turn to be that long-haired guy in the show. Now it's your turn to be the long-haired guy in this crime show. So it was like kind of another crime show. My agent goes, oh, yeah, we got you uh, audition on the X-Files. So what's that about? I don't know, aliens and cops or something, whatever. Like, couldn't even, like, tell me anything about it. And they go, and we don't even, they don't even know what they want. That's the thing. So you might read uh, any of the three characters. So get ready to read for Frohickey, Langley, or Byers. Like just, they're, they're just gonna throw something at you when you get in there. Like, really? Shouldn't they actually? So uh, I go in and this time the room, the audition room filled with a bunch of people I've never seen before. Like big guys in, in military fatigues and shaved heads. Uh, there was like guys in business suits. Uh, you know, I don't know. And I didn't really look at the breakdown that closely. I never do because I always think it influences. Because, you know, my thing is so weird that if I try match to what it says, you know, male, uh, he's a, a button down business guy. You know, I'm then going to run that in my head and screw up my performance as opposed to just come in be myself and go yeah that's what i'm going to do on the day so if you like it hire me and if you hate it we'll talk next time sort of thing right so mm. so i mean it's a terrible way <laughs> to be an actor going hey man you get this or nothing go to hell <laughs> you know so uh came in red um and I thought it was a stupid audition because in that first episode, Langley's on the phone for half the scene. Huh. I'm, I'm like, I took another phone call in the scene while uh, Byers is showing the uh, strip in the $20 bill that can track you through airport security or whatever. Just right? the actually, this yeah, did you do? Yeah, right. And so there's a whole uh, like three pages of stuff where I'm not in it. I'm supposed to be just on a phone. So in the audition, it's the two readers, the casting agents, just talking back and forth while I'm doing this. And I'm just oh thinking, my oh my God, this is the dumbest. Another, you know, is this worse than Stephen J. Cannell's crap? I don't oh. know, right? And then, so, <clears throat> you know, I blew it off. It's like, ah, whatever, bloodily do. And then they get a call, hey, they want you to come back. Uh, and they don't know again which part you're going to go for. <laughs> okay. Fine, come back, read again. This time they got another actor in the room and it's uh, somebody in a suit this time. And like I read and he does buyer's lines and I'm doing Langley's lines. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. So they kept bringing me back to read against different actors playing buyers. So, so kind of my fourth time, I'm still doing Langley. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I, I'm thinking they're settled on me as Langley. I'm not sure, but every time, the, the feedback is be prepared to read any of the three characters. <laughs> like what? So they clearly they were confused on the production side of what the hell the gunmen were supposed to look like, right? And sure enough, years later at a convention, uh, we hear from the production side going, yeah, holy smokes, we had no idea what these three guys were supposed to look like. And it was, you know, written by... Um, uh, uh, Glenn Morgan and James Wong, right? So they were like brilliant writers and they had seen these three type of guys in an airport handing out UFO literature, a guy in a suit and a guy in a leather jacket and a guy in a rock t-shirt. 
And they went, oh, let's remember that. That's brilliant to stick into some show. And so they stuck that in with details like, yeah, I'm wearing a Ramones t-shirt. That is a detail that they wrote in wow. before they had any idea. And so sure enough, they're all going, okay, sure. The long blonde haired guy, Langley, we need a guy in a suit who may be funny. I don't know, we, should we be funny or not funny? They didn't know what to go. So I read actually with my best friend, Gary Jones, who later went on to be um, uh, Walter Harriman in Stargate, the guy who opens the Stargate, <laughs> that guy, he yeah, read mm -hmm. to be buyers. He could have been buyers. It would have been me. And we were both from Vancouver Theater Sports. That show would have uh, gone way into over budget with the amount of improvising we would have done there. But then, uh, so then they uh, settled on Bruce Harwood as buyers. And I didn't read with him ever. I only met him on the day on set. Wow. And then I said, well, who did they get for Frohickey? And they went, oh, he's the first assistant director. And I'm like, no, what the <laughs> hell production is this? Getting crew now to read lines? <laughs> and it turns wow. out he had a theater degree and then went into assistant directing because he had kids and need a buddy, right? And he, and he was organized and he's a fantastic assistant director and great actor too. And, and that was the look because the director said, ah, yeah, for the, uh, for the Frohickey guy, we need somebody short and Weasley like Braidwood over there, the first AD, we need that, like a, that guy. And they said, well, it's only one line and it's only like, they're only in this script. They're not gonna be recurring. No, that's what I was gonna ask you, that's exactly, what, that's what's amazing to me. This is the time before social media. And I read that- He's at the cusp. Right, that it, there's supposed to be a one-off, but because of the popularity of the characters on the internet, you they asked you to come back. That that's true. That's all. That's all true. I remember going to a house party with a bunch of um, university students that were all, you know, I hung out in the computer science department as well because it was right next door to the theater arts department. So I would often go over there, and they were at a party, and they go, "Oh man, you're blowing up!" I'm like what? Yeah, yeah, and they they pulled up an, a green screen of just letters and it was uh, Unix code of all things. So RN was read news, uh, wildcard uh, gunman, right? And it was just read news about gunmen. And then all this stuff came up of like people, and this is 1993. So think that's pre-AOL. That isn't even, HTTP uh, hasn't even been uh, fully programmed yet so this is like pre-internet and all these people are going oh my god are you watching these x-files holy smokes the lone gunman this proves that chris carter and the writers are lurking in our news groups <laughs> because they wrote these characters that are exactly this culture that we are living here there it's it's dead on you know it, the computer nerds aren't these uh buttoned up pocket protector types it's a guy with long hair and, uh, you know, Ramon shirt. That's totally what we are. So they're in here. And sure enough, it was true. <laughs> it was wow. Chris Carter, Frank Spotnitz. <laughs> We're going to those news groups early on and seeing immediate feedback because it was the first time writers got immediate feedback from a show to see what the fans thought. So we, it became we, this a symbiotic loop that we just kept feeding off of till we you've got a spinoff and 
now I'm on retro culture pop. pop. Hey, look at that. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys absolutely started that trend about being a nerdy, funny computer hacker, which other shows then started leaning into. Was that, was it discussed among all of you? Um, yeah, for while sure. You were filming? Well, yeah. particularly the writers. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, Vince Gilligan, who went on to do Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, was one of the early writers. Huh. And he said specifically, oh, my God, you lone gunman, you just save us so many times. Anytime, you know, we got to come in 43 pages. Anytime we're six pages over, we just bring you in and we take those six pages and just compress it into you type a couple things and go, hey, we just opened the gate and oh my God, uh, here's the password and uh, look for the aliens on the left. And you know, it's a little like you have saved so much logistics and Mulder and Scully running around, just like, click. okay, you're in. Okay, and it was just like, oh my God, what a great shorthand for writers and producers when you're going over budget, how do you come in at 43 pages with this complex, you know, movie-like story that you're trying to tell and you got to move that plot along what do you do well get your get a computer hacker or two and you know make them interesting and make them fun right and then well then that went on to ncis and all of those you know every show suddenly had a computer hacker <laughs> because the writers went hey how easy is that and you know culturally relevant and all that sort of thing so we just like rode this wave of like oh yeah man whatever the fans want so it was basically, we were day players that just kept, kept calling Coming. back. We never signed a, a like a, a, a season contract to like season six, I think. Oh, wow. So, My God. So we were just day players for six years kind of thing. Yeah. What, what, what was Chris Carter like? And was he like involved with like all the little minutia of the show, every little detail? Like the... I, I've never seen a memory uh, of a person like Chris Carter's. He had uh, like this computer steel trap of a brain. Uh, he remembered every actor's name, all the extras. He remembered uh, previous episodes. He, um, that little uh, boy who played the, the chess master genius um, in like season seven, season six. I forget the name of the episode, but he's kind of this, brainiac kid he's got glasses on and he's like a little seven-year-old and i go where'd you cast this kid you know you know all these kids in vancouver and he go oh yeah chris carter uh it was a group of extras and he saw this kid like three episodes previously just like amongst a hundred extras standing and he remembered that kid and remembered mm -hmm. his name and then when it came to casting we need this uh, uh, you know small computer whiz uh, chess master Go, oh, hey, get that kid from the extra pool. Like, who? <laughs> like, yeah, you didn't see him? Oh, my God. Uh, it was, like, amazing. My friend um, Phil Hayes is a great voiceover guy. He played a cop for one episode, season two, and he was down in L.A., and he goes, hey, man, can you bring me on set and just, you know, come and get me into Chris's office and, you know, just say hi and then, like, maybe get me work again? And I'm like, yeah, sure, come on. And I go, hey, come on in, and, like, hey, everybody, and then, we go into Chris's office and I'm like, I'm about to say, Hey, Chris, this is, and Chris goes, Hey, I know you, you were the cop in second season, uh, Phil, right. It's like, <laughs> all of us are like, what, you know, you're now in like season six. And he remembers a day player from season two who played a cop. 
for <laughs> one day and remember the guy's name. It was like, mm. it was that kind of brain that Chris Carter had. And he was totally laid back, right? He's a surfer and he did, uh, he spun plates before he was a potter, like a, a commercial potter. Like if you buy plates at Target, uh, somebody has to put that on a, a potter's wheel and spin them out. And he had that job. He could do uh, like 200 plates a day and then go <laughs> surfing. Like he was totally chill, super calm, like unbelievable. Uh, um, you know, it's a stunning, stunning guy to run an entire uh, cultural phenomenon, really. Well, that, that's, uh -huh. you know, you talk, it was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it was like everywhere at that point in the 90s. I mean, first of all, when did you first start hearing that your, when did you first start realizing that your characters were becoming like really popular as well? Yeah, well, you know, in Vancouver, there wasn't really, uh, I mean, your feedback was just your friends. And I was still on stage every night. So it was like uh, every now and then somebody go, oh, hey, I saw you in that show or somebody stopped you. But, you know, Vancouver, you kind of know everybody. And as many people recognize me for doing 10 shows a week at a theater sports than as they did on anything I ever did on television, oh. right? So it started there. But uh, then the magazine started reviewing us and, and the sci-fi magazines. Um, I'm trying to think what, what was the turning point of how famous, I suppose it was being in Dhaka, Bangladesh. <laughs> Follow me on this story. So my, <laughs> my, uh, my parent, my dad worked for the Canadian National Railway. When you retire, they send you to a third world country because Canada sells their uh, used trains to like level five countries and then take the people who worked on those trains to travel over there, live there for two or five years and then train employees on how to fix those trains and those models, right? So he and my mom were flown to Dhaka, Bangladesh. They had a house, a cook, a servant, a driver. They stayed at the Canadian consulate for barbecues. There was a swimming pool. You know, they loved it, but it was Bangladesh. So then when I flew over, um, my dad goes, oh, hey, there's a bookstore uh, nearby. It says it's got an X-Files and it was one of the first X-File books. And so we go to the bookstore and then sure enough, it's like, oh my God, you're the, from the book. And like everybody in the bookstore in Bangladesh speaking Bangla, we're all like <laughs> super excited. And then they told the local, um, I guess it's Entertainment Weekly, but in Bangladesh. And uh, they did an interview with me. They came over to the house. And then I was in the Bangladesh Entertainment Weekly. And then he calls me up and he goes, hey, great interview. You got three marriage proposals. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm kind of already married, but thanks. And then, and then from there, it was like, oh, wait a sec. Yeah, this show's in 167 countries. This is like a business card. You could travel the world and you will be known and sure enough once i realized that i started doing conventions and headlining comedy clubs as the guy from the x-files and i switched my show so that i improvised an episode of the x-files live on stage <laughs> as a one man one man improvised x-files episode because wow. that's, that's, so first, that's the first time you realize that this this show is just like at another level now <laughs> it's another level now yeah it was like because you know 
it's no street justice. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, like, that, you know, that's what is that going to do for you? And no. so, yeah, so I got to, uh, I did stand up in New York for uh, months. I would do uh, uh, sci-fi conventions around the world, of course. And the very first one they invited me to, I'm like, well, I don't want to go because technically I didn't watch the show uh, when I was doing it because I was performing 10 nights away. So it was on Friday nights. That was my big night to do three shows. I wasn't recording it. So I was like, ah, so what am I going to do? They said, oh, you got 45 minutes of stage time to talk to the audience, you know, Q&A or stuff. And I was dreading going, oh, my God, they're going to go, hey, in episode six, when you did that thing. I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know. It would just be yeah. that. It would just be like, oh, I was dreading it. But at the same time, I was doing two-man improv with an improviser named Roman Danilo in central and northern British Columbia, which some of the hardest rooms any comic has ever mm. faced. They're loggers and uh, natural gas workers, and they drink hard. And, you know, one guy showed me his tattoo on his thigh of a <laughs> naked woman that he did himself by putting his fingers in his jeans and ripping his pants open to show me some stick figure with boobs that he somehow hand jagged into his quadricep. Oh my God. <laughs> and he liked the show. That was, that was a big fan of mine. So, <laughs> so, so that's the kind of shows that we did. And we had the ability, um, uh, our strategy for hecklers, for drunks, is to bring them on stage, to like get them out of the crowd and have them come on stage and improvise with you so that the other improviser could leave the stage, get the bouncer and tell the bouncer, that guy on stage performing with Dean right now, as soon as they're finished that scene, throw him out because oh, he's awesome. a drunk and a hassle. But when you drag him on stage under the lights, it you know throws them enough that they stop being a problem, right? So, so we could That's do hilarious. like basically four or five scenes with drunk loggers, like angry, angry people. And we could do that for like five minutes at a time. So when I told Roman, I'm going, I don't want to go to this convention because I'll just be sitting there shrugging my shoulders for 45 minutes. He said, we'll just take the four scenes that we do with any drunks and just link them together as a narrative of the X-Files, right? So, you know, there's some weird alien thing that starts. Then there's a government cover-up. You do arms. And then you show up in character and you pull up somebody to play Mulder. And then, you know, you save the day by battling the alien. It was like, it was a genius moment. And that was the very first convention I did. I was like, okay, I'm not going to take questions and answers. I'm just going to do 45 minute improvised X-Files episode. Here we go. And it nearly tanked the first, the first one I did. Oh my gosh. A, a technique of course, is if somebody's not looking at the stage, like if they're looking down while you're getting everybody to participate, you know, and, and be part of the thing and shout out suggestions and stuff like that, you kind of single out the guy who's like pretty shy because you know he's going to be actually so shy, he will probably do something amazing, right? <laughs> so I say, hey, that guy, you, not, yeah, come up on stage. And the wife's going, no, no. Yeah, yeah, you. And then I had a wireless microphone. So I left the stage and I walk like five rows in, and then I see he has a seeing eye dog. 
He's totally playing. Oh. He's just listening to the show. And I'm like, no, I'm not you. The guy behind him, you in the sixth row. I met you. Come on up. Oh, <laughs> I was like, no. wow. That's how close I was to screwing that all up. And, and all the Fox executives were there and they saw that and they just said, that's brilliant. What are you doing for the next 10 years? Can you come do every corporate thing? And, uh, oh, amazing. Yeah. And so I just did that. Well, I still do that, but now I, I switched it more to ghosts because the ghost hunting thing is so right, right. We're going to ask about that too. Now, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Get to that. No, yeah. yeah but I, I, yeah, I think you answered this question now because I love The X-Files. It's probably my top 10 shows, favorite shows of all time. Mm -hmm. So you don't watch, so you you were not able to keep up with the overall arc in mythology. Because... No, no, not at all. I had to actually listen <laughs> to, I would actually go to the fan talks sometimes and sit in the back going, oh, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, I didn't know. Oh, see? And I think to this day, there's still gaps in the number of episodes. Because every now and then somebody goes, oh, yeah, you know that episode where Mulder did that? I go, mm, no. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure I have. I have well, no who, idea. Who, who greenlit home? That's what I got. <laughs> oh, do you want to know that story? I do. <laughs> Holy smokes. So, yeah, James Morgan. And... Uh, uh, I mean, Glenn Morgan, James Wong, right? So they uh, were doing great stuff on the X-Files, but it was, you know, temporary. So they went over to Chris Carter's other show, uh, Millennium, right? Yeah. <laughs> Millennium was about hunting serial killers and it had, uh, um, oh my God, how am I losing every name <laughs> that I know? Uh, uh, Lance Hendrickson, right? Lance okay. Hendrickson was the psychic who could psychically uh, tie into serial killers. And there are many incredible shots and gruesome stuff in this. And basically, uh, come season three, and the show's on the cusp of being canceled or not. But, you know, uh, Glenn and Jim, they're giving it their all, they're writing these best episodes. And uh, and then the executives, ah, whatever, they could just go back to the X-Files and they canceled Millennium, right? Well, this pissed off Glenn and Jim so much that they go, oh yeah, we're going back to the X-Files. We're going to write something so toxic that it can oh, never my. be filmed. Oh yeah, oh ha, how about this? Uh, inbred brothers and the mothers on a skateboard under the bed that they inseminate. And like, just the, I, that's the only script my agent showed me the script. He goes, you guys aren't in this, but you might want to read this one. It's called Home. And I just read the teaser before the opening credits and I had to put it down. It was so gross. Like oh. the way they wrote it. And then the last paragraph of that one is like, and so if this, you know, and all those execs at Fox could go, the, you know, <laughs> shit themselves silly with this one. And if this ever makes it past the censors, you, you know, all of that. So everybody uh, on the X-Files, production was getting behind right later in the season as was common you only had eight days to film one of these things and everybody had these ambitions to make these over epic movie quality episodes so ultimately you started running into production problems and the rain and the you know vancouver and whatever so everybody's like oh my gosh oh my gosh and everybody goes okay don't worry the next episode is Glenn and Jim. We, we don't have to worry about it. Let's just focus on this episode. And so they get most of it in the can and they all pick up the script three days before they have to start shooting. And they all go, oh my God, <laughs> oh, oh, oh my God, <laughs> what the hell? 
and and then everybody across the board went into panic. Uh, I know many uh, female actresses in Vancouver who had to read for the mother on the skateboard under the bed. <laughs> and they go, so how do you see this character? And they're like, how do I see an, an amputee on a skateboard getting banged by her kids? What are you talking about? It was like, oh, oh my gosh. was a screw you to Fox, really? That was it. Yeah. Wow. And so, so then they go, okay, well, we got to film this. This is all we got. We can't like, rewrite something now three days before. So they film it and it goes to legal and legal goes, we can't show this. What are you crazy? And they're like, well, we're not doing a rerun. Okay, well, okay, well, we show it once with a disclaimer up front and then a disclaimer that it will not be part of the reruns. We'll never air it again. That'll be it. Wow. And they're Amazing. like, okay, like, like, let's cross our fingers. And they aired it and everyone was like, what the hell was that? The, yeah, the home episode. And then uh, that uh, Thanksgiving, the Lone Gunman were invited to uh, host the FX, which was the cable branch of Fox, right? FX was doing an X-Files marathon and inviting you to vote for your favorite episode. What's your favorite <laughs> episode? Overwhelmingly, 89% voted home as their favorite episode that Thanksgiving. And then all the, it's Thanksgiving. We oh, It was a family episode. <laughs> I think somebody actually said that in the meeting too. It's like, well, it was family. I guess that's bringing it all together. So they went, okay, well, we didn't know that'd be a fan favorite, but we will air it again. And then from then they just said, oh, well, nobody's complaining. Hey, it's a good show. Hey, well done, boys. Hey, you did it again. X-Files is fantastic. And they just kept airing it ever since. So it was oh, like this, it, it sort of tilted the needle way over to what you could do on television oh. in terms of like, which led to, you know, Stranger Things and however many shows have weird ass uh, plot lines and disgusting things going on. I don't think Stranger uh, Things ever got to this level. <laughs> it, might, it might be the most I, yeah, disturbing show that, that. hour that I've ever watched on TV. Oh yeah, yeah. It's scary. You know it what? Scary though. <laughs> so. I, and I think that's one of the ones I don't think I've seen all the way through frankly, oh. <laughs> because I knew some of those actors that it was just disgusting what they had to do. And it was just like, oh, dear Lord. So I think, you know, well into my retirement, I'm going to pull that one out and just shock myself. That'll be my defibrillator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm awake now. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let's talk for a minute about uh, David Duchovny and Jillian Anderson. What were they like to work with? Fantastic. You know, what was weird watching the show is uh, how many laughs we had off camera. Like it was like a really fun set. And then when you see the show, it's like heavy and gloomy and like serious stuff. And you're like, oh yeah, I guess that's what we were saying in our lines. But in between takes, I mean, David Duchovny, one of the driest martini dry wits <laughs> yeah. I've ever seen, yeah, holy so. smokes. If you ever seen him in the Gary Shandling show, oh yeah, yes, that, that is was his brilliant, so brilliant, and that is his sense of humor, and that is his timing, and you know, <laughs> did evolve in like California Cash, but I don't think any show has captured that uh, serious level of super dry, quiet bon mots that would just land like nuclear comedy bombs 
<laughs> like nobody's business. And Jillian herself just loved laughing. Oh my God, she was, you know, uh, stuff would make her giggle. And she was so sweet to everybody. Um, her last day on set, she gave everybody a bathrobe. It's like, oh, that's so sweet. And like, you know, she was absolutely lovely. So everybody was like, it was, it was really weird how like fun the family was. And then to put out something so gloomy dark that you're like, what? So you, you may not want to talk about this. We can cut this out too, because oh. at the time, the reports, all the reports, there were all these things in the news, and they basically confirmed it on recent talk shows that there was tension between them at the time. Is that noticeable by the rest of the cast or no? Uh, you know, everybody was tense because you're working 16 hour days yeah. <laughs> and you had eight days to put this thing together. I mean, the producers were tense. Everybody like had so much pressure on them. And you know that uh, scene from broadcast news where that woman runs from editing and she's jumping over stuff and then throwing the cassette in just yeah. as they go to air. I can guarantee you from the editing department at the X-Files that happened at least three times for real wow. running from wow. the edit department to the satellite uplink to get it over to New York, just like 30 seconds. The last commercial goes before you have to run that teaser. And it was literally that close from cutting to having it air. So, I mean, you have that kind of pressure. Yeah, you're gonna get on each other's nerves. I, you know, you're hanging out 16 hour days, you get past the niceties, you get now to really know each other until you get to the point where like, hey, get the hell out, you know, and it's family, right? You, sure. you know, you yell at your mm. brothers and you still love them all. So, so you, it, tension more it was that's that's how family operates right it was yeah. like that so so anybody who said oh my god they were like fighting yeah because it's like lord the pressure on those two to carry that show from nothing to cultural icon uh mm -hmm. in a mere seven eight years i mean everybody's life just turned around on that one yeah that totally makes sense yeah. Um, well, when did they first approach you about appearing in the Lone Gunman spinoff? Oh, when did that happen? Oh, I, well, I don't think I have it here anymore, but you know, it got asked so often and I'm just looking for some of my artwork and I can't find it, <laughs> but I drew a comic book called Why the Lone Gunman Was Canceled. And it's a true story of how it came together and how it fell <clears throat> apart. And it's drawn by me and it's from my perspective. And in the comic, you can get it digitally on my Facebook page. Oh, I think. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and read it there. I printed a thousand, sold them at the conventions, only a thousand printed. You know, I don't know what they're selling for on eBay now. But uh, it was, you know, rumored. They had, uh, Chris Carter had a three picture deal. When you have a hit show, you get, uh, option to make three more shows, right? Mm. And so he made um, uh, the Marines all interlocked in. Uh, that was shot in Vancouver, and I forgot it had Terry Quinn in it, uh, but it wasn't that great. So that got canceled. Then they go, well, what else are we going to do? And we don't have time because you know the amount of pressure of putting an episode together was immense for all the crew. And Frank, I think, said, oh. You know, in season five, when uh, David was stuck shooting uh, a movie in L.A. on his break and Jillian was still uh, in London doing something, 
we did a lone gunman standalone episode, sort of the origin episode called Unusual Suspects. And like, oh, hey, yeah, and they, they carried the show. Why don't we just send that in to the network and say, here's the show. And they went, oh yeah, let's get that. And so that was 13, right? And it was and it's sort of like, oh, fantastic. So they never said anything to us, right? So me, Tom, Bruce, we're all like, have you heard anything about a spinoff? No, uh, I heard piss off, but that's something different, <laughs> right? I think that was completely uh, elsewhere. And then we go to a, a television critics association uh, party, right? The TCAs. The TCAs is a twice annual thing where every TV critic from every newspaper from around the country is flown to Los Angeles for a big party and they get to interview all the actors on all the shows, right? And so uh, there's the formal thing on stage and then afterwards the party and you can corner anybody and they say, you know, don't get too liquored up because anybody can corner you. I think it was Kate Muldrew who had to go back and apologize to everybody actually. <laughs> oh, <laughs> she didn't wow. follow that rule. But uh, but yeah, she had to, uh, you, you go, okay, great. So we get to the party and I'm walking and somebody from Canada goes, Dean, hey man, it's me. Hey, how are you? Great, whatever. Yeah, hey man, seriously, uh, Lone Gunman spinoff's a thing. I go, nah, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, it's a total thing. It's gonna go. I, we got the, the message from the network, the whole thing mm -hmm. to ramp it up. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure they would tell the leads first. <laughs> And they're like, yeah, no. And then other critics started coming. Hey, congratulations on your spinoff. Yeah, no, I haven't. No, there's been no negotiation. My agent hasn't heard shit about it. Uh, so, okay. But that night, uh, we had to go shoot at 3 a.m. Uh, an X-Files all-nighter. So we were, um, after that party at like one, we get the cars and we're driven to set at 3 a.m. And Chris Carter's directing first person shooter, right? And we go, hey, Chris, funny thing that the TV, all these critics say the Lone Gunman thing's a spinoff. He goes, what? Yeah, yeah, they all say it's a thing. Uh, can I have my phone? And he just gets on the phone and walks away. <laughs> so now, and this is in the comic book. Oh, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, we're all sitting in our, our trailer and I just go, oh my God. I go to the other two. I go, you know why we haven't heard? They're recasting it. They're going to recast the three of us. Oh my God, they're going to get, uh, you know, Scott Wolf from Party of Five, or I don't know who they're going to get, but it's not us. We're going to get fired and they're going to bring three other guys to do a lone government spinoff. They're like, nah, they could do it. Yeah. Uh, why, why else haven't, like, so I'm setting off the paranormal alarm on this thing. And sure enough, it goes on for two more weeks. It shows up in Entertainment Weekly. It shows up in Variety. Hey, winners of the week. It's long. We still haven't heard anything. Mm -hmm. Finally, somebody goes, hey, man, sorry how this all rolled out. But yeah, totally. You guys are, are doing a spinoff. And I'm like, well, why didn't you say that? <laughs> how come? Why was the pecking order in reverse on that one? And it was like, oh, from there, everything was kind of weird on that series. Uh, in that sequence kind of thing. It was like, what? Did, did, so, this, was it anything like like a Roper's thing where they promised you that you could come back if the shit didn't work out? Did they do that to you? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. They said, you're still going to do X-File episodes. Uh, and in fact, they would either fly us in or they would just set up a camera remote and then we would be talking to, um, 
David, or Robert Patrick by that time was on. So that was season seven, right? And so, yeah, they were doing like shots where like, okay, this is Long Emin, but here's your X-File script. And now shoot that simultaneously uh, at the same time, or we're just going to send that back and cut it in to <laughs> Los Angeles. So it was like, you know, it was disconcerting. But, you know, Lone Gunman, the, the head creative on that was Vince Gilligan. And he loved that show so much. I and <laughs> he, he's often said on podcasts, his one showbiz regret is that didn't get uh, more than 13 episodes because he had so many ideas and he had this great arc for it and the whole thing. And so, you know, he said, one day I'll bring it back. <laughs> so did he share any of those storylines with you? I mean, or was there anything you knew about that didn't get to get to be no. because of the cancellation? Uh, one was uh, we were going to bring Pam Anderson in as herself uh, as a, in the uh, Lone Gunman office. And uh, it would turn out that she has, you know, top secret military clearance somehow. And it's uh, Pamela Anderson, and uh, you know, and we're all like, "What the hell?" So that was it was going to be like that kind of cool thing. But other than that, no, he didn't share uh, much. The writers didn't really uh, come up and go, "Hey, we got you know this cool thing or that cool thing." They would do more, um, you know. Oh, the episode we're working on now is really hard. I don't even know how they advanced anything because it was like they were. It was literally they hit the ground running and didn't stop running for like nine seasons. So mm. it was it was a marathon for everybody involved. At one point, there was three camera crews going 24 hours around the clock. There was an A unit, a B unit, and mm. then a C unit oh, doing wow. inserts. And you would often, David had three different scripts in his hand and would be running at oh, like two o'clock in the morning to the C unit to do an episode, three episodes back to get the inserts and then come to B unit to do like some action shooting thing for another episode, then come back to us and do his lines with A unit. And like, how did he keep it all together? It was amazing uh, how everybody held their, held their own on that thing. Well, I, I love the Lone Gunman and then, you know, I was upset when it was canceled. And all right, what genius decided to kill you guys off when you came back to jump? Because that pissed me off so much. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and a lot of others. I mean, uh, I got a call from the Ramones, of all things, saying that they cried. They cried when the lone gunmen were killed off. Because uh, uh, I actually got to meet uh, the Ramones because of the T-shirt. So uh, there's a really odd story with the Ramones and the Lone Gunman and me specifically. Um, uh, it turns out when you wear a shirt, it has to clear legal, right? So legal called the Ramones who have their mother, Joey's mother uh, still kind of runs the biz or I guess now she's gone, but there's the, uh, I met the, the Ramones uh, business um, um, analyst guy, right? And so he was doing all the business stuff. So they get a call from legal. Yeah, this TV show wants you to use your T-shirt. And I said, hold on. We got to watch the show first. And it was on a Friday nights, right? So they watch it. They go, oh, my God, we love the show. Totally wear the shirt. And then from then on, uh, they would play first at CBGB's on a Friday night. They were going at like 7 p.m. 
and just ripped through their set so they could all go home and watch the X-Files. So people would come and I go, hey, where's the Ramones? Oh yeah, they were on at seven. <laughs> what, who was here at seven? Nobody, they don't care. They were, they were watching the X-Files. And so, so when uh, Joey got cancer, he got lymphoma cancer and they flew me out for a posthumous birthday party. So uh, Marky was still alive, Johnny was still alive. Uh, Dee Dee was in LA and I think he was on his last legs there. But uh, so this birthday party, they had me and come in and introduce a band and show clips from the X-Files in this connection. And um, yeah, they, Mark said, yeah, when Joey was dying, uh, all he wanted to do was watch Long Gunman episodes of the X-Files mm -hmm. and the spinoff. And that's, mm -hmm. and we just brought him in and his uh, apartment on the Lower East Side was there and he loved the show so much and he loved you guys so much. And, uh, you know, uh, we kept his apartment as is. So if you're ever in New York, you can just come and stay at Joey's place. <laughs> and I never took them up on it. It was just too oh, mind to shame. I know, <laughs> I know, right? And so uh, so he called, Mark called the day he died. He just on my phone, I'm driving. It's like, hello? It's like a 212 number. It's like, oh man, oh my God, we were all crying when you guys got killed off. I go, is this the Ramones? <laughs> yeah. Oh my, yeah, it's me. Oh my God, it was just it was so tragic. Oh, and you guys were great, you know, and he knew all the details and we just talked for like half an hour, me, and, you know, and it was like, wow, what kind of special relationship does an actor get with the coolest band oh. in the world? Oh, uh, man, and that man. they, you know, were so connected to our characters it was such, hmm. you know, such an honor, it was weird. So, yeah. Oh, oh, sorry. No, no. So, I mean, yeah, so that's ahead. the uh, how we found out we're dying is that Frank just called us on the phone going, hey, man, we're killing you off, but it's going to be super cool. I'm like, yeah, great. It's been going off, you know, uh, uh, sticking a hobo bag into the sunset, I guess. God, like, yeah. I mean, did you just roll with it or was it just shocking to you? No, uh, no, I actually prefer because, you know, you knew the show was winding up. I was like, mm. well, if we all just sort of sit there twiddling our thumbs as uh, we say, oh, we're, we're going deep underground, that doesn't seem right either. And mm. it's, it's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did something heroic? Because theoretically, the gunmen were always heroes. They always painted them out as heroes in the show. So it would be like, oh, yeah. So killing us off would be kind of cool, actually. Mm. And it was <laughs> like, and nobody dies in science fiction anyway. So it would be like, okay, well. You do, you know, oh my gosh, you've been cloned in a, you know, thing of gel and now you're back alive or, or how they brought me back in season 11, right? My <laughs> thing is digitally uploaded to the cloud and I, we're all living here with the Ramones and it's weird and we're trapped. Get us out of here, Mulder. I uh, was waiting for you guys to be, show up at, in season 11, like as the rules. Oh, this, this didn't happen. Like, you know, we, I, <laughs> so I was disappointed with it. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess they had to, I think, you know, they were trying to uh, get that linear storyline as through as possible. So Glenn Morgan wrote that as well. So it was kind of a full circle. You know, he well, wrote said, the first I, one. I, I, like I, told you, I was pissed and I, I was even more pissed because it wasn't, wasn't a Duchovny episode. So it, to me, in my mind, uh -huh. it was like, you know, these are Mulder's boys. You know, where Mulder should be in the episode. When, when oh, did you first start hearing about the backlash against this? Oh uh, yeah, that's you know what you're the first to say that, Jonathan. I don't think anyone else was choked that was that Mulder wasn't there, but it's true, right? He didn't show up in that episode right. at all. <laughs> yeah, ha! Huh. 
Wow, that's weird. Now you mentioned it. That where was that the Mulder bastard that were dying? Hey, this now changes the whole show for me. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. This is terrible. And and you you are aware of the, the comic book that that killed that said that that didn't happen. The that uh yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that uh uh yeah, um uh, the company, yeah, that does these large things, IDW, right? They right. do they do these reissues of original artwork uh, from different comic books, huge things. So IDW got the rights uh, to the X-Files and I hosted the 3000 person panel at Comic-Con that year with Chris Carter and Jillian Anderson and the guys from IDW. And uh, Chris said, yeah, I'm working with the IDW and we're carrying on the, the thing. And I said, okay, in front of 3,000 people, is this official canon? And Chris Carter goes, yes. <laughs> hey, hooray, it's official canon. Suck it, suck it, everybody. <laughs> We're alive. And then they went off on these, like, I get the call going, oh my gosh, we got a great idea. We're going to do, uh, kid you not, Lone Gunman, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Ghostbusters, and something else, Crossover in comic book form. I'm like, what? How? Oh, it's going to be great. Wait till you see it. And sure enough, there was like six IDW comic books of the Turtles, the Gunmen, uh, Ghostbusters, and one other thing, and the power I, of Google. I'm a huge comic book geek, and I don't believe that I don't know this one. I'm going to have to go look for this now. It's super rare, yeah. And it was like, it was a weird, and it was coming out the same time as the IDW X-Files. So it was concurrently. So perhaps you didn't notice it on your comic book shelf because it did wow. stand out as super weird. I'm going to have to go look for this. Now, you as should. far as you know, are there any more plans for any more X-Files? And would you be involved in it? If, if... Oh, yeah. You know what? It's the being Langley is the easiest thing in the world. That was my long hair. Those glasses were fake. Uh, <laughs> I wore my own jeans and my own sneakers on like I just had to throw on a rock t-shirt. It was like, it wasn't, you know, plaster on my face, no pen in my hair, <laughs> none of that. It was like a dream gig of just show up, say your lines at three in the morning and then go to bed. It was like, ah, oh, how easy is this? So I love doing it. Um, uh, characters were great. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I would do it again. Uh, but it would be, you know, David and Jillian and, and mm -hmm. culturally everything has changed too. post pandemic, you know, we play conspiracy theorists. Now you got Q and on and, and like now conspiracy is, is relegated to some sort of, uh, political end with, you know, um, conspiracies in the nineties was a way different bag than conspiracies now. Right. Nineties, oh, yeah. they were researchers. These were. Uh, serious people with doctorates. Um, and if you were involved in conspiracies and UFOs in the 90s, you realize now 85% of it did not come true, was way <laughs> off. There was no, so add that uh, math now, 85% of what everybody's saying. Uh, and, but now we have a social experiment gone completely awry that amplifies the way wrong things in the wrong direction. And so you have 
uh, a much larger problem than just going UFOs exist, right? So, so uh, yeah. So my responsibility to that, I sort of sometimes think, oh, geez, you know, I shouldn't really uh, have uh, embraced all of that craziness so much, uh, perhaps back then, because now I'm sort of laid the groundwork for any idiot to take it up onto himself. And, you know, and so much and not... The only person that sort of held it uh, was right was Jordan Maxwell. Uh, Jordan Maxwell knew about uh, symbols and imagery and long-term uh, machinations of how the world has a under machination working and stuff like that. So he predicted the rise of this fascism around the world and, and right-wing authoritarianism from the images of the eighties. Like, just looking at Abercrombie and Fitch advertising and FAO Schwartz pictures. It was just like, this is a direct line to that and it's gonna happen and you'll just wait and see. And he was totally right. Well, so, you, you, you've also been hosting a lot of sci-fi stuff and this is one, Ike and I talked about this in the previous episode now too. So are, are aliens real or <laughs> supernatural stuff? Is there, <laughs> are there things out there? Well, see we that, yeah, right, that's the thing. It used to be, uh, there was a guy named Steve Bassett who actually had a, a project called the Disclosure Project, which was, uh, okay, if aliens are coming to Earth, uh, it is, you know, up to, for the sake of humanity, that we communicate with these guys, <laughs> not stick it in a top secret thing and steal Velcro from them or whatever the hell, <laughs> the reverse engineering, <laughs> you know, not that. And so now, all of a sudden, in the last two years, NASA, Congress, uh, the military, the military has given all of their uh, ex-employees freedom to speak about their experiences. Nothing is off the table. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's a release of, of files. There's um, uh, my friend John, you know, used to just uh, every week do a Freedom of Information Act asking for UFO files. And he has tons of it on the Black Vault Network. Uh, if you go Black Vault, he's basically scanned it all and put it on a hard drive available for public viewing. And even now, he can't keep up with how much information is coming out. So uh, the problem is, all of that comes out, and the the, the resounding uh, thing that everybody says is, I don't know. <laughs> like, like, there's no definitive proof. It was kind of better in the 90s going, yeah, yeah, no, there, there's a thing, and here's this, and this is you know, this little bit of information proves that this is happening in there. But now it's like, no, here's all this information and we don't know what the hell it is. Uh, we got oh nothing. And we're like the most brilliant scientific minds of NASA and the military. I don't know. I don't know what can go underwater at the cyberhunting speed and what can fly that fast and go. Well, and what's amazing to me is like in the last year or so, the government has kind of basically admitted that they're, they're aliens or the UFOs that they don't know about, and no one cares. There's so many other things going on in the world that no one pays any attention to it. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, that's the other thing. Hey, look it, it's right. there. Right. Yeah, right. I know. But, oh my gosh, look at what uh, Dr. Right. Fauci did, that bastard. Like, we know, but there's aliens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that that's a thing. I, I guess that's post-pandemic, too. There was a lot on our mind, so... When we come out of that and we can all settle and get our, our frazzledness out, perhaps we'll go, oh, hey, aliens, hey, let's look at that for a minute. 
So yeah, we're sort of planning a, a show kind of reconfiguring that uh, not so breathless. Could it be like, I, I hate, I mean, Ancient Aliens, bless those guys. I know them all, they're great. That show's a big hit, but that narrator, mm -hmm. If he says, could it be that blah, 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 one more time, one more time, punch that writer in the face who's writing that narrative. Dana Carvey, could it be safe? Yeah, everything. <laughs> could it be aliens built the pyramids? Well, no. How about we had the technology and we lost it because 25,000 years later, what happened? I don't know, wars, we all got drunk, whatever, man. There was like, it, you know, you're taking away human ingenuity that could pile a bunch of bricks up in a, in a pyramid form and make it really cool and going, ah, yeah, no, it's gotta be aliens. Cause I don't know how to do that. Well, that's yeah, not exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right? I actually never thought of it that way. That's fantastic. Isn't that fantastic? I mean, yeah, just, good why are you taking away humanity's yeah. brilliant <laughs> ingenuity over the centuries and going, ah, come on, guys from space did that. There's I I don't even know how my cell phone works. Come on. This is oh, alien. Man. <laughs> you oh, know, man. like all of that, right? So yeah, uh, that bugs me to no end. And uh trying to you know devise a way to get past that self-degrading ability of the human mind to achieve amazing things well, right? one ask about one of, one of your abilities <laughs> and everyone associated you with like this computer nerd and, and you did nothing to dissuade that notion because you had really invented something for laptops oh, <laughs> yeah. oh my god <laughs> totally I, I invented a laptop cooling system called the chill pack and uh it was really simple. It, you know, you went in the freezer. It had uh, uh, this material that didn't uh, it it didn't form condensation, so no moisture would develop on your computer, right? And it had a um, uh, sort of a shield under it. So uh, apparently, earlier laptops. I don't know if the case now, but if you used them on your lap, you were irradiating your testicles to the point of impotence. So, oh, wow. so yeah, I know. So I made it so that you could put that in your lap, uh, that the uh, the gel would cool the laptop and keep it running so your fans weren't trying, because fans don't really cool your motherboard. It just drawing air across it, hoping the air, the ambient air outside the computer is cooler than the air inside the, the unit. And so, I invented this. I won a silver medal at the International Inventors Expo in Geneva, Switzerland. Wow. Uh, and sold this thing. And then I sold the patent to a company going, yeah, man, we're going to mass produce these things. And then they just stuck it on a shelf. And I was like, hey, man, what happened to that thing? Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to it. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Uh, you know, like, but it'd be really good, you know, laptops overheating and stuff. Yeah, they're going to change to uh, ceramic motherboards. They're going to get away from, or then they're changing to, yeah, from silicon to ceramic. Ceramic dissipates the heat so much. So I, I don't, you know, nobody's going to want the chill pack. Well, well no, but they still. Pack. Yeah, yeah, we want to talk about your, your now, nowadays, it seems like everyone has a podcast, like including us, but you were among, you were among the forefront of the format, I, which I was shocked when I read. You've been doing it a long time. I mean, can you tell us how you got into it? 16 years. Yeah. 16 I, it's, years. It's oh, every wow. Monday. Yeah. Without fail. Every Monday. A Still free back Hollywood. Right. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. That show. Yeah. yeah. Originally, we called From the Heart of Hollywood. And uh, another guy had that show and sent us a cease and desist letter 
saying he's going <laughs> to sick the lawyers on us because the show is about Hollywood and having heart and we're all working together on this. So I'm going to sue you, you bastard, and get using my title. But hey, man, heart of Hollywood, man, we're all together on this. I'm going to get you. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, whatever. So we called it the uh, Chill Pack Hollywood Hour after my product, which at that point I'd sold the patent and disappeared. But we kept the name because we bought the website. So what the hell? And uh, uh, yeah, so I had a production office uh, on uh, San Vicente. And... Uh, next door was a, a friend of mine who was in foreign distribution. And every Monday morning would come in going, hey, man, did you see that movie? We, you know, water cooler talk, basically. And our intern at the time goes, you know, you guys, this is really fascinating. You should record this and just put it up. And then like, oh, OK. Yeah. The, you know, they're called podcasts. And I'm like, mm, do they have to be called that? Because that's named after like the iPod. I don't think that's going to be around forever. Can we? <laughs> I don't know what cast, internet cast, I don't know. So yeah, we call it a podcast. And then uh, it's the Chill Pack Hollywood Hour. Get it wherever you get your fine shows. Um, we got on before data analytics and, and things. So we actually have no idea who's listening to us or what our audience is. Fascinating show. I, mean, I huh. listened to the last three episodes. I mean, oh, cool. Really, you guys are really interesting. And I, I can't believe how long, that's why when I started looking up afterwards, how long, like, oh my God, they've been doing this a long, long time. A long, long time. Yeah. And we talk about celebrity deaths yeah. because, you know, this is like a, a, you know, a long Hollywood history has I a long the arc to it. One, right? yeah. yeah. And, and his wife, uh, read the SAG after magazine and you know on the back page they always have the uh history you know historical picture and it was um Red Skelton performing at the breakfast club in Los Feliz in 1950 or 1940 and she's like I live in Los Feliz what's the breakfast club and so she went out walking and she found a building right by the fountain on Los Feliz and Riverside across the street from there and there was 12 people showing up on a Wednesday at 6 a.m. And they were a friendship. They were just uh, random people from Los Angeles. And they had been carrying on a tradition from the 1920s when executives from Warner Brothers and uh, uh, I think Clark Gable was one of the first ones. They would ride their horses from the far side of uh, Los Feliz Park. They would like ride their horses and then come here and have breakfast and just, you know, do goofy things. And it became the breakfast club. And it became so huge that there was a radio station in the club that they were broadcasting this meeting uh, in the 1940s. And then it dwindled off until she came in, said, you can't let this die. This is a 90 year old cultural, cultural institution. And now the breakfast club is sold out every morning. It's the bigger and better than ever. And it's all Los Angeles. Hollywood folk and from all walks of life coming together, celebrating friendship and camaraderie and having fun. And it's, you know, and it's how, what Los how often Angeles do you record? Uh, they record uh, uh, simultaneously. So I think they do a weekly show as well because it's every Wednesday at 6 a.m. And yours uh, is every what? Wednesday morning. So I, think, yeah, so I think their show goes up every Friday. Okay. I'm not 100% sure, but that's the other show that he does as well plus they have all these 78 uh, lps that were recorded from the shows from the four they have a whole library 
So they will pull excerpts of famous people that have given talks or done shows at the breakfast club. It's amazing. Yeah. So him and I, we, we produce movies, we talk movies. uh, We work together a lot. Um, He's a director. uh, And yeah, he's very organized. If it wasn't for him, Chilpak Hollywood probably ended like 10 years ago. I would have been, oh, oh yeah, but I, we have the same dynamic. If it wasn't for Jonathan, this never would have started and it wouldn't, it wouldn't, con- it wouldn't continue. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know. And moving in Australia, you know, hold another time zone on another day. We kept it going all through the four years of Australia as well. Oh, and man, like that's man. a testament to him because that move and then moving here from Australia, the culture shock of coming to Detroit from Sydney, Australia, uh, a year before pandemic locked everything down. My God. That wow. Like, yeah, that was a that was a brick wall car thing. <laughs> well, what are some of your um, some of the upcoming topics you have for your show? Uh, let's see. Uh, well, we do uh, celebrity deaths is a big one now. In fact, somebody wants that to spin off onto its own show. Because, you know, the bodies are piling up fast and furious now that uh, I don't know why. But but yeah, we talk about that. Um, but more about uh, the shift. There seems to be a cultural shift going on, almost as radical as the 60s, but without a core group of, uh, you know, kids. There's not like the hippies. So yeah. there's something happening culturally, not yet uh commodified or labeled or thing but but we are feeling it and we are talking about it and it's this very interesting time both artistically in terms of hollywood how movies how people are consuming entertainment all Mm -hmm. of this shift going on uh is kind of making everybody's um, sand under their feet seem a little wobbly which is mm. you know hard to deal the way, with the way people consume entertainment is different now yeah yeah oh for sure right and i mean regal cinemas going into bankruptcy whereas uh imagine here in michigan making money hand over fist so lots of people go movies here well, not a lot of people like going I, said, I, I definitely recommend everyone listens to your podcast i mean you seem like an encyclopedic knowledge of hollywood it's like incredible <laughs> like <laughs> the topic comes up and you 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 know something on the on the issue so, well and it's like i'm sure i like you know, you know any story of like oh this actor died or whatever you go oh yeah i met him or i really enjoyed a live performance mm-hmm. you know the joy of living in la is a lot of those actors you see on screen also love doing theater and plays yeah. and stuff like that. And so yeah. you where can people it. find you? What's the website where people can find you? Chillpackhollywood.com spelled C-H-I-L-L-P-A-K. No C in there. Uh, Chillpackhollywood.com. And uh, we got a Facebook page where, you know, anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Just find it. You'll love it. <clears throat> awesome. So, well, look, totally. we also just, before we let you go, we want to touch upon your art because your paintings are absolutely beautiful. And Thank I you. have I have to say your take on Rockwell's freedom from want is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. Um, oh, thank you. you. You do a lot of shows. And can you just tell us about your art, where we can find it? And, you know, where did, yeah. where did oh, this other God. talent come from? Well, I've always been doing this. This was cartooning from uh, as a child. 
and uh, you know, big uh, fan of Walt Disney, of course. Look at behind you. That yeah, all yeah. of that, <laughs> uh, you know, loved all of the animation and stuff like that. And in fact, I painted that wall because doing these Zoom things, you say, "Oh, I'm an artist," and then you don't want to have just a white blank wall back there. So yeah, you know, yeah. you got all of that stuff. Um, uh, do I have this one here? Let's see. This is uh, this is one of the. Uh, I've taken a bunch of Norman Rockwell and added. Uh, let's see. Can you see that without? Oh fire? my gosh! Yeah, so that's a chest burster coming out of the little kid. <laughs> so there's like alien <laughs> Norman Rockwell. Oh, I love it. I love alien, it. Uh, Turn Yeah. So freedom from want. I believe that has the uh, head of um, uh, John. Uh, not JFK, Linda B. Johnson. So they're serving the head of Linda B. Johnson and she has tucked in her apron how to serve man, right? From uh -huh. Twilight yeah. Zone, right? And everybody's yeah. like, mmm, delicious, the head of Linda B. Johnson. And it's like, you know, just, and just adding one sort of alien thing or one weird uh, uh, thing to change the whole uh, dynamic of the Norman Rockwell painting. That's a series I did. Uh, what else am I working on? That's um, those green things are the madness of green. Uh, living here in Michigan, uh, they really concern themselves with their lawn more than anywhere else I've ever lived. Every lawn is a big aspect of living here that I didn't know existed. So, so uh, they pride themselves on just the insanity of green. How green is your lawn? Shocking it with all sorts of chemicals and paying for all sorts of devices to trim it and cut it and go oh my god you guys you should really back off on the lawn care really. <laughs> <laughs> well it's vlog time what, what do you have coming up next uh up next holy smokes well come to your chill pack hollywood of course uh i'll be doing a couple conventions uh i guess october you might want to get over to connecticut because somebody has been spending their life savings buying all the props from the X-Files and oh opened up the props museum. Wow. Uh, over, uh, so look up the X-Files props museum or X-Files museum. Chris Carter already uh, saw it and he cut the ribbon uh, for the opening. So there's gonna be kind of all the cast. It'll be kind of a reunion. They're flying in almost Great. everybody uh, to this thing and you can see all the latex aliens and the cancer-eating monsters and uh, shirts with blood on them. He's collected all of that. And so that's pretty cool. Uh, More important but, that, well, like, like, like I like to ask people, are there gonna be any Florida appearances coming up? <laughs> I see, when am I coming to Florida? I just missed a con in July. What was that one called? I'd, um, yeah, so some con experiences. Uh, I do a show now every Saturday night called Scared and Alone. It's a live streaming ghost hunt oh, um, wow. with four other psychic. Yeah, I know. This is really actually a cool show because each one of us here, we're actually alone in your own house, right? So imagine <laughs> one of us is in a haunted house with just their camera and a ghost meter and they are freaking the heck out and we see things moving or perhaps not moving behind them while they're looking into their camera and they're feeling like cold or they're hearing sounds and other people who are watching are also chirping in the chat going, oh my God, I'm hearing stuff. And what's <laughs> even weirder is the electrical energy 
screws up all our computers. So I've lost uh, <laughs> my my audio drive. My wow. my robot vacuum started up in the middle of the show one time. Just started vacuuming way outside of its time thing. It just started up and operating by itself. Uh, all nine of my hard drive just kicked out automatically at the start of one show. Uh, people report their monitors go fuzzy and all sorts of stuff. So, so it is actually a very terrifying live streaming. And this is for your website. We can you can get yeah, access scared to and alone or go on the YouTube uh, and type in scared and alone. Um, we were doing it every Saturday. Somebody had to travel or somebody had to go to uh, their mother was sick or something like that. So we're going to start up in September and we go to various haunted houses, mostly Victorian mansions all around the country. We send uh, this very brave uh, woman, uh, uh, Miss Buckley. She goes by herself and she spends uh, two hours with us. And then often if it's a, uh, Airbnb or something, she'll spend the night and then live stream that on her Instagram. And that's even terrifying where while she's sleeping, the door will open or something weird will happen <laughs> in real time. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm, I'm scared of horror movies at the best of time. This show always just tenses me up and scares the shit out of me so badly that I don't know why I'm still hosting it. Frankly, I should <laughs> really find someone else. <laughs> <laughs> Dean, thank you, thank you so much. It's been an absolute oh, Jonathan, pleasure to have pleasure. you. I, I say this sincerely. Anytime you want to come back, we welcome with open arms. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been such an honor. I loved all your work, Ike. It's so great oh, to talk to you, man. Thank you. It's been an equal honor to get a chance to to chat with you. And what amazing stories! Good grief, yes. man! <laughs> oh, I got a million of them. I, oh, yeah. Apparently, you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. I love it. So, thank so, you so much for your time. And yeah, you bet, guys. Take again, care. This has been Pop Culture Retro. I'm Jonathan Rosen with Ike Eisenman, and again, a very special thanks to Dean Hagland. And please subscribe. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Retro, where no one was hurt during the making of this podcast. 